I was going over my teaching, and I got this funny feeling that it sounded familiar. And so I grabbed some Christmas series teachings from a year ago and found out that I was, without thinking about it, recycling uh, two or three different messages uh, from a former Christmas. I think it's because my thoughts tend to run along the same themes year after year. So if this tastes a little bit like last year's fruitcake, you'll know why, if your memory's good. Uh, most of these themes, though, I, I suppose we can afford to repeat once a year anyway. Uh, my girls grew up seeing a lot of Walt Disney. One of our favorite movies uh, was uh, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. And uh, I won't ask you if you've seen this one, but it's a Disney classic. It's a very, very young Sean Connery in it. Uh, Certainly recognizable, but Sean does a little singing in this old Disney classic. Anyway, uh, Darby O'Gill is this old codger who's on speaking terms with the leprechauns. And he knows that, and the leprechauns know that. Other people aren't so sure. But he catches King Brian, king of the leprechauns, and he's going to get three wishes from him. And he's kind of wasted two of them. He's got one wish left. And he's in the local pub, you know, life in the old Irish village is centered basically at the local pub. And the people who believe Darby's actually got the king and got a wish to, to be granted are trying to help him, you know, what to wish for. And he's got to be careful for two reasons. He's got one wish left, only one. And the other thing is because the king is tricky, you know, and, and you might ask for something and he could give it to you, but give it in a way that you wouldn't like. So one bright idea out of the group is Darby. Wish for happiness. Wish for happiness, you know. Sounds like it couldn't go wrong. Darby's reply, the sage of the ages says, though, the only person who's happy entirely is the village idiot. That's the joke, guys. The village idiot. In other words, uh, I might be happy entirely, but to be happy entirely, I would end up being the village idiot. The king would make me the village idiot. I'm not going there. Happy, anyway. Yeah, that was my attempt at humor. That's as good as it gets, and it's downhill from here. Uh, happiness is an issue, you know, for most of us, uh, seriously. Uh, happiness, if you talk to anybody, we all want to be happy. And you think of the founders of our country when they wrote the Declaration of Independence. They said something about happiness there, too. They said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They didn't say you have a right to happiness itself, but they said they believed God had given us a right to pursue happiness. Happiness is a funny thing, though. As you know, if you've uh, pursued it, uh, it's like stand hunting pheasants, you know. You might see one, you might not. If it gets up, you might hit it, you might not. You might walk long and hard and end up empty at the end of the day, or you might end up with a few feathers. But happiness is a fickle bird indeed. In fact, uh, you think of it, it's elusive, happiness is. It's fragile. It's fleeting. It comes and it goes with circumstance. And I thought this was interesting. Our word happy comes from the Middle English and the Old Norse word hap or happens. In other words, happiness is entirely dependent, in our English usage, on circumstances, on what happens. So you can see why happiness is a fickle creature. 
because it's entirely dependent on what comes down the pike, on what happens to occur in your life. So it's kind of the thought was it was tied to luck. That is, if good things happened to you, you were happy. And if bad things happened to you, you were sad. But happiness was entirely dependent on circumstances and on what happened to come down the road. So our pursuit to be happy, it's a pursuit, but sometimes it's a fairly fruitless one. And it's difficult and elusive and fragile because it depends on things outside our control. That's happiness. Joy is kind of like happiness and significantly different. Joy, by the way, comes from the Latin, the, the uh, enunciated tie is not obvious. It comes from the Latin gaudia, and probably the G gets turned to J, but it actually means joy means a jewel. Joy means a jewel, and, and like happiness, we tend to think of it as an emotion, but it's significantly different. Uh, Happiness depends on circumstances. Uh, It's like the wind. You don't control it. It it blows something good in and the next time it blows something bad in. But joy is like a jewel. It's something that has substance. It has integrity. It's like an object you can actually hold in your hand. It's not like the wind that passes between your fingers. Joy is also an emotion. It's a state of mind. Um, Oxford English Dictionary says a vivid emotion of pleasure arising from a sense of well-being or satisfaction. Typically, too, if you look up definitions, it's tied to something beyond circumstance. The thought of joy is typically spiritual or religious, depending on the definition you look up. But instead of a bird on the wing, joy is like a fountain that's fed from an underground spring that never runs dry. One's a bird, it's fleeting. The other is a substantial resource that you, you can never exhaust. You and I might not be able to catch up to, to hold on to happiness, but certainly in this life we can make a good stab at joy. We can pursue happiness, we may or may not get it. Joy is something we can work on. You can see, you know, you're thinking of Christmas. My thoughts turn to joy at Christmas, which is why some of this may sound recycled. But, you know, for some people, Christmas is a great time to talk about either happiness or joy because the happenstance of their life are good around Christmas. So Christmas may elicit in your mind warm memories of the past. Or you may be getting together with family or friends this Christmas. Maybe you already have. Maybe you will be. And and that uh, brings thoughts to your mind. It's, It's comforting. It's pleasant. It's pleasurable. It's desirable. You talk about joy or happiness. It's the right time of the season to do so. The flip side, though, too, you know, if someone's going to feel bad, you know, the worst they're going to feel is typically around holidays, and Christmas is just one more of those. So for somebody else, you talk about Christmas at joy, if your finances are down and you couldn't get the gifts you'd hope to give others, or if getting together with family and friends actually is not seen as an upside in your life, but a downside, uh, Christmas and joy don't necessarily go hand in hand. But my suggestion this morning is when we think of Christmas, no matter what else is going on in our life, no matter what the tides of time and circumstance are blowing through, Christmas should be for us, should be in our minds, a time of joy. And you'll see why here as we work through a couple things together this morning. Christmas brings Christ. Christ brings joy. If you don't get anything else this morning, Christ brings joy. At Christmas time, we remember the incarnation. Christ brings joy. 
One of the great stories for me in the Old Testament along this theme of joy, and it is tied to Christ at least through the ancestry, is Abraham and his son Isaac. Abraham and Isaac. You remember Abram is 75 years old when his dad dies. And in Haran, God speaks to him and says, Hey, leave this place, leave your extended family, and you come down to a place, I'll show you. And Abraham does. Actually, Abram at this point in his life. Abram obeys God and goes down. Now, I'm typically thinking if I obey God, I'm good to go. Life is good. I'm blessed. I'm happy. My life is full of joy. But you know, if you've been a Christian for very long, that is not the equation. This is not two plus two equals four. Sometimes you get happy circumstances when you're obeying God, and sometimes you don't. Abraham didn't. And if you start at the end of Genesis 11 and start reading through his story, you see what I mean. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to be hopping through a bit, so good luck following. Uh, Anyway, uh, Abe no sooner gets from Haran down to the promised land where life will be good and he'll be happy. Then what happens? A famine develops. Abraham gets to the place he's supposed to go and he starts starving. There's no food. There's no food to be had in the place God just told him to go. So famine is his first experience in the promised land. So he goes down to Egypt. And while he's down in Egypt, fear is his experience. And why is he afraid? Because his wife, Sarah, frankly, even at their advanced age, Sarah is so beautiful that he's afraid that if he makes it known that that's his wife, that he would actually be hurt or killed so someone could take his wife from him. So he doesn't tell anyone. Of course, Pharaoh takes his wife and God tells Pharaoh, you're a dead man, can't go here. And and Abe walks off with a little bit more livestock than he had before. But his obedience with God starts with famine. And then it's fear. And then when he comes back up, he and Lot, their, their flocks are expanding. Life's good. He's, he's becoming a man of means. And then what happens? And then strife becomes his next experience because his shepherds and his servants, now they're fighting with Lot's shepherds and Lot's servants because their flocks have become so great, they're competing for the same grasses, for the same areas to pasture their flocks, the same water. Strife, famine, fear, strife. So they go their separate ways. And life's sort of good again, right? Abe gets news, though, about Lot, that Lot, his nephew and his family, have been taken captive by King Chedorlaomer. I think this is Genesis 15. So now Abe's thinking, okay, I've got to take care of my young relative, so I better do something about it. But... If you read the passage in Genesis, uh, this King Chedorlaomer is a force to be reckoned with. When it tells you the cities he's defeated, the three cities, they're cities that giants live in. You know, later when Israel wants to come into the land and the spies spy it out and they see the giants that they're called various names in the Old Testament, Anakim, Rephaim, there's probably a couple others I'm forgetting. These are giants, so that when the spies go back, this is later in history, of course, they go back, they said we're like grasshoppers before them. Well, this King Chedorlaomer and his vassal kings and their armies, they'd taken on the giants and whooped them. And they've beaten the Amalekites and the Amorites also. So when Abe hears that Lot and his family are taken captive, and he thinks he should do something about it, he's facing the biggest bully on the block. This guy is bad news. He's taken on the giants in the land and he's won. And this is who Abraham has to go 
and face to get Lot back. You see where I'm going. Abraham's obeying God, guys. He goes where God tells him to go. And circumstances don't blow nice things his way. It's one challenge, one strife, one famine after another. He does, of course, win in the battle with the king. And he rescues Lot. But fear remains a key element in Abram's life. Not happiness at this point, not joy. Fear is what he's facing. So in Genesis 15, 1, God pays him a visit. And God says to Abram, don't fear. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abe's response to God, Lord, what will you give me since I am childless? Remember, at this point, no kids. And you know, for us, uh, we are families in the West, frankly, in the world today, we plan on not having kids. We see this as an upside, typically. This is simply, historically, is not the case. You know, especially if you look in biblical cultures, having children was the highest goal of life. You, you passed on who and what you were to the next generation. Having children was highly desirable. Well, Abe and Sarah, they can't have kids. So when God says to Abram, hey, don't worry, don't fear, I'm your shield, Abraham's response, he doesn't have to think about this. He says, Lord, I don't have any kids. I have no posterity. When I die, there's no testament and there's no one who will live on after me, which was the Old Testament hope, essentially, as far as life on the earth. It was to pass on who and what you were to the next generation and so on. And Abraham's response to God is, I've got no one. I'm childless. Why would you tell me don't fear? I have no children. He says, you have given no offspring. Maybe a little point of blame there at God, the one he's obeying. You've given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Not my own descendant, but someone else's descendant who I'm related to. The word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. God takes him outside, says, look at the heavens, count the stars if you can so shall your descendants be. He believed in the Lord, Abram did, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. God says, I'm going to give you a child. Don't worry. I am your shield. I'm going to make life good. You will have an heir. Now, it's all Abe wants in life. The camels, the goats, the wealth, all that is good, you know, but that's not where his heart's at. The child is where his heart's at. God's promised him a child. Life is good again. The winds are blowing favorably. So they try and have a kid, of course, and, and uh, they don't for a while. No problem. They keep trying. No child. They keep trying. No child. You know, they try for at least 12 or 13 years. There's no child. So Sarah gets the bright idea that she'll help God out. She gives Abram Hagar, her Egyptian servant, and says, maybe God will give us the child through her. And, of course, Hagar gets pregnant right away. And this sounds good, right? Uh, I'm happy, but not really. Because now Hagar starts showing disrespect to Sarah because Hagar can get pregnant and her mistress Sarah can't. And, you know, this would be true of anyone in here, but you know a miserable woman can make life miserable for the men around her. Did you know that? And Abram... It would never be true, I'm sure, of anyone in this room. Never true of me in a house with five women. So I know it wouldn't be true for any of you. But Abram is, is now, his life is set between two competing women. Two angry, bitter, disrespecting women. 
This does not sound very happy to me. Doesn't sound very joyful either. So, a son's coming, but boy, there's strife with it, and life is not happy, and there's not much joy to be found. Thirteen years later, Genesis 17, 1. When Abram was 99 years old, Ishmael is about 13 years old now. The Lord appeared again to Abram and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you'll not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. I'll bless her and indeed I'll give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be mother of nations. Kings will come from her. Abram fell on his face and, and laughed. Now this is the laugh of incredulity. Uh, he, he's 99. Sarah's 10 years younger. She's 89. It's like, Lord, we're past this. Not going to happen. Abram laughs and he says, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And Sarah, who's 90 years old, will she bear a child? Abram's response to God is, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He's not much, but he's what I've got. He's the bird of happiness in my hand. So bless Ishmael and said, Don't worry about somebody else. We're too old. But God says, Nope, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. I'm going to give you the son. It's going to be through Sarah. His name is called Isaac. 1721 says, My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Genesis 21, 1 through 3. The Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he promised. Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. You guys know Isaac means laughter. Isaac means joy. When God fulfills the promise, Abraham and Sarah get laughter, they get joy. Genesis 21, 5 and 6, Abram was 100 years old when his son Isaac, laughter, joy was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone here will laugh with me, will celebrate with me, will rejoice or share my joy with me. Abraham is the friend of God. He's God's chosen guy. And yet, if you read his story, the winds of circumstance that might happen to bring him happiness, they bring him typically adversity. Adversity after adversity after adversity. But when God gives him the son, Abram gets joy. When God gives Isaac, they get joy. Randall mentioned last week uh, kind of the the historical period the Incarnation was set in. And um, I love history, and so I love reading about the 400 silent years. Uh, F.F. Bruce has a great book on this period called New Testament History. If you get a chance to read it, well worth your time. If you just go from Malachi to Matthew or Luke, you miss something of of, of the time and the circumstances that the Incarnation occurred in. Um, 400 silent years, we say. Malachi, the last recorded prophet, and then 400 years of silence. That is, God has not spoken prophetically, in a recorded way at least, from Malachi on. And 
It's not that history quits, of course, or ends. And Israel's life as a nation keeps going on. They're back in the land. They rebuild the temple. And actually, if you read this period, if you read First and Second Maccabees, it, it describes a portion of this period. Part of these years are great because under the Maccabee family, Israel, they whip the Syrians. They kick the foreigners out. They take over the kingdom basically to the area that Solomon had had it under Israel's golden age. Under the Maccabees, they regain most of that, but it's relatively short-lived. So that when you get to Caesar and Rome, Israel again becomes an occupied territory. And remember, Israel's living in the land of promise. The temple's there, they're offering sacrifice. You could say, at least in some, some significant way, they're where God wants them to, do, to be, doing what God wants them to do. And yet the winds of circumstance and happenstance are not blowing happiness their way. They're an occupied territory by the Romans. They don't rule themselves. This was considered a curse. But also, even within their own entity, their strife, the high priest family, the Romans picked them. And this was contrary to the law of Moses. So people hate the high priestly families. But also there's these various schisms within Judaism at this time. So you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. They're all competing. Their theological point of view, who, who ought to be running things, the way they ought to be run, etc. So at the time of the incarnation, it's strife. It's spiritual famine, if you will. It's not a happy time. It's a difficult time. It's a trying time, even though Israel is where they belong, some ways at least, doing the things they're supposed to be doing. And it's into that kind of confusing, disappointed, perhaps unhappy setting that an angel appears to an old man in the temple and says, you're going to have a son. And your son's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And then that same angel goes to this little gal, born up kind of in the part of Israel that's considered the waste place up near where the Gentiles hang out and tells a little gal who can't have children because she's never been intimate with a man, tells her she's going to have a child. The story of the incarnation comes into this very confused, very strife-laden, very unhappy set of circumstances. The proclamation of the incarnation. In Luke 1, starting at verse 39, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, entered the house of Zacharias, that old priest the angel appeared to, and greeted Elizabeth, the old woman, just like Sarah, the old woman that God had said would have this son in her old age. She cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. When the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. At the very sound of the mother of, uh, excuse me, at the very sound of the mother of the Messiah, John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb for joy. Jesus is present even in the womb, and another little fella in an adjacent womb leaps for joy at his presence. Mary says in, I, in Luke 1, 46 and 7, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. The mother of the Messiah says, I have joy 
you guys know, not happy circumstances, of course, uh, because there will be uh, varying competing views of who the father of this child is because she and Joseph hadn't actually celebrated their wedding yet. And it's not that her circumstances are happy. They're not. But even though circumstances are not happy, she says, I have joy in God, my Savior. Our family uh, had a great day yesterday. We went nowhere. We saw the wind and the snow start. Our cars never turned, not a wheel. We moved a little snow late in the afternoon, but you know, we uh, stayed in our PJs all day. And uh, we had good coffee and we had good things to eat. We watched some good things on the telly. And one of the things we watched was Charlie Brown Christmas. And Charlie Brown, as you know, was a profound philosopher. And I'm thinking of Charlie's uh, words. Uh, This is a guy who has trouble with Christmas, right? Because he knows there's more to it than he's getting out of it. And this concerns him. So Charlie says to Linus, I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Later on, Charlie says to Lucy, the psychiatrist, I'm in sad shape. I feel depressed. I know I should be happy, but I'm not. And you know, actually, this is the case for most of the people that have anything to do with the Christmas story and the people in Jesus' lineage. And it's true more often than not for most of us. Christmas is here. Life should be good. On one hand, life is good. I should be happy, but I'm not. You know in Charlie Brown, he's looking for happiness, but he can't find it, even at Christmas. But when he asks Linus to explain what Christmas is all about, And Linus goes center stage, and the spotlight goes on. What does Linus tell him? He quotes Luke's gospel, and he closes with, Don't be afraid, the angel says to those shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today, in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Linus's message to Charlie Brown is Christmas brings Christ and Christ brings joy. Christmas brings Christ and Christ brings joy. Life, uh, probably for most of us, isn't what we thought it would be. Uh, For kids, maybe we don't have an expectation yet. I'm not sure. Uh, If you look around and you think, where you thought you'd be in life, how important you'd be, how much money you'd make, how significant you'd be, whatever that looks like. You know, for most of us, the longer life goes on, the greater the distance between what we thought we would be and what we are. The greater the disparity between what kind of the rewards or the happiness we would experience in life and the reality of what we've experienced in life. There's, there tends to be a, a wide margin between expectation and the happiness that actually happens to us along the way. At times, anyway, we feel like, Abram, we're doing what we're supposed to do, we're where we're supposed to be, but with Charlie Brown, we're just not happy. We know there should be more. 
I love the fact that one of the Christmas story calls the time that we live in weary. You know, when Jesus appeared, it was a weary world. And in your life and mine, certainly at times, it's a weary world. It may not be a a world or a lifetime or experience that we call happy. But at Christmas, whether you're happy or not, whether the winds of favor are blowing for you or against you, at Christmas, you can have, you should have, your experience should be that of joy because Christmas brings Christ and Christ brings joy. You remember Abraham, I don't know what he thought in his own mind, but if his life could be described as the pursuit of happiness, he doesn't get it at least not significantly so, until he gets Isaac. But once he gets the son of promise, he gets laughter and he gets joy. And for you and I, the truth is, if we get Christ, we get joy. It doesn't mean happiness, necessarily. Um, joy sometimes could, can feel almost painful. You can experience joy in the midst of difficult circumstances because it's not like happiness dependent on what's going on at the time. Christ is what Christmas is about and Christ brings joy. We talked about worshiping the King a couple weeks ago and today let me just leave you with a couple thoughts about joy. If we go through Christmas and the expectation is happiness, we're typically thinking about Things like good meals, lots of presents, uh, getting together with friends and relatives, time, time away from school or work, all of which are good things, but all tie more directly to happiness than they do to joy. Because some of those things may go well or they may go not well. It may be great and it may be otherwise. But if Christ is the focus for you at Christmas, you can have joy. So let me just encourage you with a few things. Mary rejoices in God my Savior. If you're a Christian, you know who you belong to, you know where you're going, and whether your life's full of happiness or sadness, you've got eternity with God to come. You have something to rejoice over today and tomorrow and Christmas Day and every day because you know who you belong to and you know where you're going. And also, frankly, all of us in this room, we've got so much physically to be thankful for. I mean ridiculously so, just on the material end of things. Even those of us whose health isn't perfect, we've got doctors and medications, we've got good food, we've got warm houses. You know what I'm saying? If we just sat down and said, Lord, we're thankful for, the list just keeps going. If you just stop and think about it for a little bit. Here's, a, here's a, an option for you before your Christmas meal too. Uh, before you dive into the happy pleasure of Christmas meal, uh, read Luke chapter 2. In other words, focus again on Christmas because Christmas brings Christ and Christ brings joy. So at Christmas time and on the 4th of July and hunting season or whatever, whatever life is blowing in or out of your life, whether it's happy circumstances or not, Christmas brings Christ, Christ brings joy. And if you've got Christ in May or April or August or September, You've got joy. You've got laughter. You've got the source of joy just as Abram finally got in Isaac, just as Mary got in Jesus. Christmas brings Christ. Christ brings joy. Let's pray.
Father, I am uh, I'm stunned at my own ability to look at all the things in my life that I think aren't quite what I'm after and lament and sing the blues to you about how you're ripping me off. And yet one sane moment, one objective glance, Lord, at life, and I'm reminded afresh of how fully and truly blessed I and we are. Lord Mary got it that she rejoiced because you'd given a Savior. And Father, we could experience all the upside this world has to offer. We could be the happiest people on earth as far as circumstance goes and die and be separated from you forever. Or Lord, we could live a poverty-stricken life but be tied to Jesus Christ and know joy in earth and in this time here and forever. Lord, I pray that you help us keep our eyes open to who and what we have in our salvation. And Lord, as we spend time with each other and with family and friends in the next few days especially, help us to remind ourselves and to remind others that Christmas brings Christ and Christ brings joy. In Jesus' name, amen.